Good evening, everyone. It's nice to see everyone. Um, We're in Joshua chapter 9 tonight. Joshua chapter 9, please. As we're going through the Bible, we're in Joshua now. And this is our third message in Joshua. As we've seen them enter the promised land, and Joshua there, leading this people, how to realize that God doesn't take sides. It's time to take God's side. It's time to go where he's going. Then he fought the battle of Jericho. And there we saw that God has a flow. He has a rhythm. And it's for us to find it and go with it. And things work. When we go against it, things don't work as they learned in their first loss. And then they get back in the flow and they're victorious. And they're moving into this land in which is a metaphor for you and I of that purpose that God has made you to live your life on earth. There's a place God has for you, and he wants us to grow into it. He wants us to be fruitful in it. He wants you to have, as Ephesians says, your inheritance in Christ who has been given to you and who's given every spiritual blessing you can possibly need to live this life already in Christ. And we're going to, at the end of Joshua, do a one week in Ephesians and connect what the New Testament tells us about this concept of the promised land in the Old Testament. So, uh, but tonight we have the third phase. And this is where Israel has yet another failure, yet another test. And they learn how to go forward. So as you can see in the title, mistakes are made. And I hope that all of you can relate to that concept tonight. So, Joshua 9 through 12 tonight. Proverbs 19 verse 2 says that whoever moves too quickly misses the turn. Whoever moves too quickly misses the turn. Now, when I was in elementary school, there was this popular test. I think it still goes around called the good listening test. But the first time I took it, I didn't pass it very well. You see, what the test does is it says, read everything before doing anything. And then it starts giving you questions. And so like every student, most students, you come to a test and you've got assumptions and you've got preconceptions and you go into the test. And you're like all stressed out and there's anxiety. And you just want to do it well. And so it's telling you to do these ridiculous things like draw a triangle in the upper corner of the page. Um, you know, it's just got like these, what kind of a test is this? But you're thinking the whole time you're going through these questions, you're thinking it's a good listening test. I want to be a good listener. So it's telling me to do ridiculous things to prove whether or not I'm a good listener. So I'm going to do the triangle perfectly. I'm going to draw the dog. I'm going to make a smiley face. And you're doing all this. And then you get to the end of the test. The very last question says, disregard all the above, write your name in and turn it in. And so if you're going through the test, you realize that you failed. You failed the instructions. You were not a good listener because it said, read everything before doing anything. So had you read through before doing anything, you would know all I had to do is write my name and turn it in. Sometimes when we move too quickly, we miss the turn or we miss the point or we miss what's right in front of us or we get it wrong. And perhaps you've had this experience with people. Uh, They start to ask you a question or they're talking to you about something and you are on this wavelength and they're on that wavelength and you assume they're talking about that, but they're actually talking about this and you start answering the that, but they're listening as if it's this and there's a lot of confusion because you've launched straight into your assumption of what this discussion is about and you realize I missed the turn. It was two miles back there. I totally missed the turn. Or maybe you've literally been navigating and driving and you literally missed the turn because you were busy and you were driving slightly over the speed limit. I don't know. But I think we know and we can reflect upon the fact that moving too quickly, you can miss things. You look over things. You make assumptions. We get in autopilot mode and things just get messed up. 
It's safe to say that Joshua is moving too quickly in this passage, and he misses a dramatic turn. It comes in the form of the Gibeonites. Now, the importance of not moving too quickly is that we can often get ourselves in trouble, and we often behave or become people we don't want to behave or become like when we're moving too quickly. So let me show you what happens, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Chapter 9, verse 1. So Israel's now taken down two major military strongholds. And so the rest of the land is really worried because they know that their God has promised them success. So the Gibeonites are another military outpost, and they've got some people living there. And they decide, you know what? Let's get on their good side so they don't kill us. So chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, Israel's victories, that is, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. (laughs) Their neighbors, the Gibeonites, their neighbors, they're next on the list of people to defeat. Yet they're one step ahead of Joshua here. And they say, okay, we're doomed. Let's pretend we live from a very far away place. We are refugees in this land. We don't belong here. We're just like the Israelites. Maybe we can partner up. And so they, they, they make themselves look like they've gone a long way. They've torn their clothes up. They haven't showered, so they smell a little bit. And they, they just let their food get really moldy before they go on the trip. And then they go out. See, look how long we've been traveling. It's all dried out. Yeah. The problem is that they're not. They're lying. They're deceiving now, why do they ask to be, to have a covenant with Joshua? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10 and on, God is giving Israel some rules about warfare when they go into the land. And he says, look, if they're not local people in the promised land, if they're from another place, you are to first offer terms of peace. And only if they reject your friendship shall you have war. The Gibeonites apparently know this, and they're manipulating Israel's military strategy and pretending they're faraway people. Therefore, it's your obligation to make friends with us. Okay, so do people lie to us? Yeah. Do people deceive us? Yeah. There's nothing new here. In verse 7, but the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us, and how can we make a covenant with you? So they kind of smell something, right? They're like, uh, maybe you guys aren't as far away as you think. How do we know you're telling the truth? But they said to Joshua in verse 8, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where do you come from? And then they go through their story again. I want you to notice something here. They smell something like, maybe you're locals? And then Joshua asks, Um... 
They say, perhaps you've lived among us. And then Joshua says, or they answer Joshua and say, we're your servants. Huh? Does anybody catch what's wrong there? You ask a direct question. Are you locals? And then they say, we are your servants. Have you ever asked people a direct question and get a deflection like that? This, this, when you get these deflections, you know people are hiding things. You know they're hiding things. You ask them a question about their life, you're concerned about them, they deflect it and kind of change the subject or bring up something else that sounds more flattering or better. Careful, they're, they're avoiding your question for a reason. And they're avoiding Joshua's question here for a reason. And yet they don't sense it. Oh, you're our servants. And now they're feeling kind of good about things right now. So they go into the speech again with Joshua in chapter uh, 9, verse 9. They said to him, so he asked, where have you come from? They said, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of Yahweh, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and our inhabitant, the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. So here is our bread. It was warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crum- crumbly. Like that's evidence. It's just you grab the oldest bread in the cupboard. Big deal. But Israel's buying it. 13. These wineskins uh, were new when we filled them. And behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from our very long journey. All of this. No cross-examination. No questions. No, hey, let's sit on this and pray about it. Instead, in verse 14, immediately, so the men of Israel. The men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from Yahweh. Those who move too quickly miss the turn. And man, Joshua led Israel far too quickly here, and he missed a big turn. Because in verse 15, Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. He made a covenant of peace. This means he cannot go against this. Joshua has given his word and God's word that he would protect these Gibeonites whom he thought were outsiders, but are actually deceiving, lying neighbors whom Joshua was commissioned to remove from the land. Those who move too fast miss the turn. Victor Frankl is one of the Holocaust survivors, has this saying he's well known for, in which he says that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. Now, the stimulus is that moment, that incident, that event, that circumstance, that thing that person said or that thing that person did, which causes you to want to give a response But what he points out is that there is a space between this inciting action and your reaction. There should be a space. And he says, he continues to say that in that space, you have the power to choose how you respond. 
In other words, somebody does this, it doesn't automatically mean I do this. There's a space in which I can delay my response and be in more control of what I do. And then he continues and says, and in your response to what they do is your power, your growth, and your freedom. It's a powerful concept when you think about it. That here, Gibeonites come and say this. Joshua is under no compulsion to immediately react to what they present. Joshua and you and I get in trouble when the event, the thing the person did or said or that circumstance, and our response, when those gaps get closed, that's when we get in trouble. When we just react as if what the person did or said is just a button to make me react exactly the way they wanted me to, or habitually or reflexively or defensively, that's when I get in trouble. But the people who can learn to see what someone said or did or this circumstance and create a little distance so they have time to process and then choose free will, their response to that moment, that's when you slow life down and you don't miss the proper turn. What could Joshua have done? Hey, make a treaty with us. We're really, really far away people. We really like you. We really like you, God. We want to join you guys. And instead of going, oh my goodness, look how sad this is and look how tragic and let me, oh, let me just help you. Joshua makes an emotional reaction. Instead of doing that, what could he have done? Create space in the form of, let me discuss this. Let me go pray about this. And when you and I ask God for help, when we ask him for direction and for discernment, you are creating space in life. You may not always hear God's direct answer for you. And maybe you've given up asking him because you never do get an answer. But at least, at the very least, see this, that in the act of asking and praying before God, you are at least creating enough space that you can respond intelligently with insight, with wisdom, with help, rather than just react according to your fleshly impulses. Joshua is moving too quickly here. And so, as a result, he's in a heap of trouble, as you're about to see. So the treaty's made, and in verse 16, at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with the Gibeonites... The truth comes out. They heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. Verse 17. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now, their cities were Gibeon, Shephirah, Baroth, Kirath, Jerium. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Okay, so they're, they're going off now on their campaign into the promised land to the next city. And what they realize is that the very next city on their list is, oh, great, these people we just made a treaty with. Now we can't do anything. We have to leave them there. And, of course, when you find out that you've been duped, that you've been lied to, that people have made a fool of you, you're not usually very happy, nor are the people of Israel. You'll notice in chapter, in verse 18, it says at the end, it says, Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. And now you're thinking, come on, we're in the promised land. The wilderness days of murmuring and complaining are supposed to be behind us. Yet here they are again. Because Joshua is not seeking God's counsel. All the congregation murmured against the leaders. You know what happened when Israel murmured. Do you remember in the wilderness, every time they murmur, what happens after they murmur? 
they usually elect a leader to take them back to Egypt. It's really bad news for Joshua in this situation. So in 19, but all the leaders said to the congregation, hey, we have sworn to them by Yahweh, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. We made a promise. We made an oath. There's a covenant. 20, this we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. All right, the leaders are putting their foot down. Hey, we're not going to slaughter the Gibeonites. I mean, we made a promise to protect them. So they'll be our servants. Joshua, verse 22, is, I just, when I read this, I imagine he is enraged. Joshua summoned them and said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that Yahweh your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight, do to us. Do it. They're almost daring Joshua here. Hey, yeah, we did you wrong. We know we're in here wrong. We know we're in your debt. Whatever seems right to you, do to us right now. So, 26. Joshua did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. Joshua was in hot water. The people are mad at the leaders for letting the Gibeonites live. You were deceived by them? Well, hello, now you see the truth. Deal with them. Joshua does something very courageous and simply says, hey, we made an oath. And even though the Gibeonites say, hey, we deserve it. Do what you want to us. Joshua looks upon them and keeps his word. No, we'll let them live. Joshua, the polls have just come in. You are on the decline. You are one of the worst leaders Israel's ever had. Yeah, I made an oath. And so Joshua, leading with the unpopular decision, lets the Gibeonites live. And I wonder what you would do and what I would do in his situation. Let's con- let's, let's, we're going to come back to this moment. I think it's a climatic, important moment. But let's see first how this pans out for Joshua. Does he do the right thing? Because you have this tension here where on one hand, God commanded that you drive out all of the inhabitants. That includes Gibeon. But now on the other hand, Joshua has on behalf of God made a promise to spare them. So now he's in this catch-22. I'm, on one hand, disobedient by not getting rid of them. But on the other hand, if I do get rid of them, I'm now going against a word I've made on God's behalf. And so really, you have this, 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 this crisis where the decision must be made 
what is a man's word worth? And which would God want Joshua to do? So, in chapter 10, we see what happens next. This is where it's going to come back to bite him a little bit. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. He feared greatly. This is the king of Jerusalem. He feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Jephi, king of Lahish, and to Dabir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. He's just saying, hey, let's go get those traitors. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. You're thinking, great, that takes care of Gibeon. Until you realize what your covenant meant. And this is what it meant. Verse 6. The men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. SOS! Save our ship! Now, Joshua could play ignorant. But it seems like Joshua is choosing to stick to his word. I made a covenant of peace with them. We're partners. If they're in trouble, I need to go defend them. And so now he's completely changing the mission from destroying to defending the Gibeonites. Verse 7, Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So as Joshua is marching up to this battle and probably feeling the failure of his leadership, the impulsive poor decision that he made, wondering if he's in the right, if he should be doing this, defending the Gibeonites, God visits him and says, I'm with you. I've got your back, Joshua. Now, What we do not see in this is God saying, hey, you made a great decision. Nor do we see God saying, hey, you really stunk it up. God is playing completely neutral here. And I have a feeling he does this a lot. He knows that we're going to make mistakes. He's put that into his plan. And all he does is come alongside Joshua and be like, you know, I kind of knew you'd mess up somewhere. Good news is I have a plan for that. And I'm going to help you deliver the Gibeonites. So Joshua, thank you for sticking to your word. You're making me look like a truthful God. So Joshua, verse 9, came upon them. This is the five-king army against the Gibeonites. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. God's confirmation of Joshua energized him so much that this all-night march up to Gilgal, uh, according to one person I looked up, said that the march was 25 miles in distance and a 4,000-foot climb in elevation. 
So that's, that's like kind of from San Bernardino up to here in elevation, plus 25 miles of walking all night, marching them all night. When the sun breaks, they launch their attack. No rest for the weary. They are energized by God. And so they go and they launch. And is God with them? Indeed. In verse 10, and the Lord threw them, the enemies, into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them all the way to the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon. Yahweh threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. So now Yahweh's like, let me in on this. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to Yahweh in the day when Yahweh gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ahijon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Joshua's got them in route. He does not want darkness to descend and let them hide. He wants to finish the job. So he asks that the sun and the moon stop. And they do, so he can finish the job. And in verse 13, continuing, is it not written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when Yahweh heeded the voice of a man, for Yahweh fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. There's not been a day before or since that Yahweh heeds the voice of a man. And one has to wonder, does Yahweh heed Joshua's voice because Joshua's word is good as gold? Because Joshua will keep his word even at the cost of his leadership? Even at the cost of admitting openly and publicly, yeah, we messed this up. But we're going to own it. And we're going to go forward. And God is going to vindicate us nonetheless. Is that why God heeds Joshua's voice? And, and I have to wonder in connection, of course, I'm, I'm totally just springboarding here because it doesn't say anything about prayer. But one has to wonder, is, are our prayers sometimes ineffective because we are not people of our word? Because we're not people of integrity? Because we care more about our conquests than our character? Because we care more about making sure that those that have wronged us are proven wrong and we're proven right than we are about living right? One has to wonder... And it takes me back. It takes me back to what courage. When God told Joshua to be strong and of good courage, we all assume that meant going into battle against swords and against arrows and against horses and chariots. That's going to take courage. But I will bet that Joshua would have far rather gone into battle against the Gibeonites than to take the courage of standing up for them against his people's wishes. When God said be strong and of good courage, did God have that in mind too? That Joshua, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have to be courageous enough to own them and to admit them and live with them and not take it out on other people. And so as we go back, what is Joshua thinking as he realizes that he was deceived and duped? 
What is he thinking as the people are demanding that he fix his wrong? What is he thinking as he recognizes that he swore an oath and should not go against it? What is he thinking as he realizes that the oath he swore actually ends up working against God's original plan? What is the internal dialogue of Joshua? What would it sound like? What would it sound like to hear your flesh and your spirit war against one another in this situation? Or if it helps, the ego, which is essentially what the flesh is, this sense of self-centeredness of, I need to win. I need to prove and protect and promote myself. I wonder if Joshua heard something within himself. I bet he's taking counsel this time, right? God ever hates me, what I do. Um, I wonder if it sounds something like this sort of a dialogue that I can imagine would go through my head. This, Joshua, is ridiculous. Have you seen what the Gibeonites did to us? They made us look like fools. They lied to us. They must be dealt with. I'm very aware of that. And I know that they should be dealt with and that they're in the wrong. Precisely they're in the wrong. And we are in the right. And we must prove to everybody that we're in the right. We didn't mess up because they lied to us. Surely, had we known that they were deceiving us, we would not have sided with the Gibeonites. True, true, true. That's very true indeed. But I, I don't know if I can do anything to the Gibeonites. You must kill them. They wronged us. They're in the wrong. Prove it. But, but you're asking me to lie. They lied to you first. But you're asking me to stoop to their level. You're asking me to become as they are. You're asking me just because they lied to lie back. Does that make it right? They set the rules up, don't you see? They lied to you first. You're just playing by the game that they established. It's like a taste of their own medicine, really. But, 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 but Yahweh's bringing us into this land because he wants a light in the world and he wants a people who reflect him and you're asking me to become like the very people we're supposed to drive out. Nonsense, nonsense. You're just being right. I... I, 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 I don't know about that because I'm not, I'm not in the right myself. I, I messed up. I did something wrong, but they did it first. You're missing the point, but I still did something wrong. And I feel like I have to own up to that. I feel like I have to, but you don't understand what the people are saying. Joshua, have you heard what they're saying about us? They're saying that Moses would never have let this happen, that you are only half the man that Moses was, and that they're wanting to get a new leader right now. Have you heard of Andrew? Yes, they're electing Andrew to replace you. You must prove yourself, Joshua. You must show them that you're worthy of leading this people. You must show that you are right and that you were deceived, and you must show everybody what happens when people make a fool of us. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I, 
you're right, you're right. I, I need the people to trust me so that as we lead them into the promised land, they will see a warrior, they'll see a mighty person. Exactly, they will trust you, they'll follow you. But how can they trust me if I break my word against the Gibeonites? We've broken God's heart over and over, and yet he's kept his word to us. <laughs> Don't get all godly on me, Joshua. It's not supposed to take that stuff literally. But you, Joshua, the people need you. They need you to assert your power, to show everyone who's boss, to bring the hammer down, to bring the sword down. Nobody will mess with us. And everybody will smell your weakness if you don't. And they will despise you. And they will turn against us. And we will then be nothing. I hear that. But you're forgetting that I was nothing until God put me here. And if he put me here, can't he protect me here? No, he can't. <laughs> I, I don't know what to do. Uh, we're going to let them live. No! It's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. You're weak. You're a bad leader. And what everybody's saying about you is true. No. No, no, no. You're right. You're right. They're, the Gibeonites are in the wrong and I didn't, I didn't mean to do anything wrong. I was well intended. But listen, this is not about proving who's right and wrong. Because I was wrong too. And I'm going to own that mistake. And if I want to be right, I also have to do right. I can't be right and do them wrong. And, and we must show that God is a God of his word and that he is not like them and he's not like everybody else and that he is more concerned with our character than our conquest. That is stupid talk. Everybody knows it's all about the conquest. It's all about winning. It's all about being the most powerful. You, my ego, are immature and I'm ready to move on from you. Because if I've learned anything, it's that you got me into this mess in the first place. You got me confident in my decision-making skills, and I emotionally reacted when I shouldn't. I should have prayed. I should not have listened to you. I should have listened to the Spirit. And I should have prayed, and I didn't. And I'm blaming this on you. You are immature to blame this on anyone. And you're wanting me to blame it on the Gibeonites. Get out of here, ego. I'm ready to grow out of you. Oh, Lord, help me. I can imagine something like that taking place because that's happened in my life. <laughs> Not quite as dramatically, of course. It's in my head too. Although sometimes I've been known to talk to myself and pace in my office and people walk in and that's where you pull your phone out and say, I'll talk to you later. Um, <laughs> the best is when I'm muttering to myself and thinking out loud as I'm walking into my office and then there's students in there that I didn't know were in there. And like, oh, <laughs> I do this all the time. No where I'm saying. Um, this, this, though, this is the battle that we feel, and there's this ego within us, which Paul calls the flesh, and, and it wants to assert ourselves, and it wants to be the winner, and it wants to be esteemed highly, and what I think is so mature of Joshua, and this is where he is becoming a better leader and a true leader of God, is that Joshua looks at his mistakes. The Gibeonites are the embodiment of his mistake. They're the embodiment of his weaknesses and his failures. And rather than getting rid of them, he owns up to them. He owns up to them. 
And we're so quick, aren't we? When we see those things that make us look bad in front of other people, when we see our mistakes brought before our faces, we always want to assign blame. We want to assign a reason. We want to justify ourselves. And we want to get rid of it somehow. We want to show that we're right all along. And Joshua has brought this huge temptation to make himself look really good. But he chooses the God way, which is often so head-scratchingly backward from the way we think. And Joshua holds his word. And I believe that God blesses extraordinarily by bringing hailstones and making the sun stand still to show us that God always prioritizes who we're becoming and how we're living before the things that we accomplish. What makes a Christian great is the degree to which we live like God, not the things we accomplish, not how many people come to our altar calls, not how many people we've witnessed to on the streets, not how many old ladies we've helped cross the street. Greatness is in how much we're willing to die to the self that wants to be above everybody else and to become more like Christ, to empty ourselves toward others and to even look at ourselves and say, I am not perfect, and I do make mistakes, and I do have flaws. Here I am. God's going to work with this. And that's the other beautiful thing I see in this, is that God works with our mistakes. We use the word grace a lot. Um, And we use it so often, I think we just cheapen its meaning in our heads. And we assume that what grace, what's so great about grace, is its ability to remove our mistakes. But I would say it does something a little bit better and different than that. That it doesn't remove our mistakes. Grace, what's so amazing about it is that it improves us through our mistakes. That God doesn't see the mistake Joshua said and say, well, that was a waste of time. God uses Joshua's mistake to accelerate his plan against five of the kingdoms on Joshua's list. And God uses the mistake of Joshua to bring him up in maturity, to help him to die to his self, to help him to die to his his self-confidence. Is Joshua ever going to make an impulsive decision again? Is Joshua going to learn how to slow down so he doesn't miss the turn? Is Joshua going to ask God's counsel every time he has a decision now? I think so. I think so. But to say that that mistake is simply removed is to say that it was a waste. And God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste sinners. He redeems sinners. He doesn't waste his son's death. He resurrects his son. He doesn't waste our bodies. He resurrects our bodies. And God is going to, in our mistakes, not simply remove them like, well, let's just forget you have, let's just pretend you haven't lived for the last 20 years. He's going to look at all that and say, I'm going to improve you because of those mistakes. And through those mistakes, that's going to be your transformation. You're going to learn more about yourself and how much you need me because of those mistakes. So we make mistakes. I think you knew that going in. And if you didn't, let's admit it. You make mistakes. Sometimes we don't like who's telling us. We'd rather... I know, spouse, I know I make mistakes. You don't have to tell me. I would like to say it, (laughs) you know, something like that. Um, You make mistakes. You know that. You make mistakes, but how will your mistakes make you? That's where Joshua is at. I made a mistake, but how will this mistake make me? 
Will it make me into a word breaker, a promise breaker, a vindictive, egotistical maniac who's about winning? Or is it going to make me into a more humble, uh, God-reliant person who sees with wisdom and can now move despite what's happened in God's new direction? We make mistakes. How will your mistakes make you? And that is where grace so beautifully comes in. Grace is not the great denier or the great eraser, the great, oh, Bob, erase half his life. If you're me, erase three quarters of it. It's the great allower. Grace is God's way of incorporating everything, especially our failures, to accomplish his purposes. And that's the last thing I want to see in this text with you guys is how God uses his grace to uh, bring Joshua's mistakes to his assistance. I want to show you three things with the Gibeonites. First, grace does this. Grace, um, and this is all conditional. It's up to you. You have to admit you make mistakes and be willing to work with them rather than fight against them and blame everybody else and say, I was right, they're wrong. So you have to work with them. That's what grace wants to do is work with you. Grace will turn your mistakes into your servants. First, grace will turn your mistakes into your servants. If you look at 9 verse 21, we see that the leaders said to them, Remember, they wanted to kill them, but the leaders step in and say, let them live. Let the Gibeonites live. Let your mistakes live. It's not your mission to kill them. Let them live, and then, so they become cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as leaders had said of them. If we let the Gibeonites live, if we let our mistakes live, they will, because of grace, serve us. They will begin to transform us. They will begin to show us the new path. Second, if we let our mistakes live, they will mature us. As we saw Joshua's whole hypothetical internal dialogue, it brought Joshua to a higher level of maturity in seeing and leadership. And you can see that, uh, again, if we bring the drama back out again, in verse 25 of chapter 9. The Gibeonites say, Behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. A man, an immature person would have said, fantastic, they're giving me an out of my promise. I will kill them. But Joshua grows in maturity because he keeps his word, even if it kills him. And then third, if we let our mistakes live, they will not only serve us, they will not only mature us, but they will progress us. They will move us forward in the plan that God has for us. They will not hinder us because grace is about allowing all things to come together and work together to make you move forward. And you see that in chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. We've read it, but just to remind you, the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua, 10 verse 6, at the camp of Gilgal saying, please come help us. These five kings have come against us. Now, this is a gift. God has gift-wrapped progress to Joshua on a silver platter. These are five kings he would have to pick off one at a time. Instead, God brings them all to him at one place. And God's got hailstones waiting for them. And he's got a sun and moon to stand still to help Joshua. This is progress in a very short amount of time. Because 
Joshua let his mistakes serve him. He let them mature him, so they also progressed him. And that's why I love this phrase used three times in the text, let them live. It seems that there had to be a great convincing that the mistake Gibeonites aren't to be slaughtered, they're to be permitted to, use, to be used by God. So let them live. Uh, it's 9.15. Let them live. 9.21. Let them live. 9.20. Let them live. And if you want to count 9.26, it just says that Joshua delivered them. He let them live. So this is the good news. We've all made mistakes. What are you going to do with them? You've made them. How are they going to make you? Grace will cause them to serve you to mature you, and to progress you. But we have to let the egotistical, self-centered, fleshly, old nature Brandon die. And that's where I rise. I transform and I become more like God. And I think that's what God wants to do as he leads us in our promised lands is not just to make us successful. That's a wealth and prosperity preaching. He wants to make you more like him as you go deeper into the promised land. Character over conquest. Doing right before you can be right. It's not about winners and losers. It's about God growing us. So we have the great opportunity to practice and reflect on this with communion as Jesus shows us he can handle our mistakes. Mistakes are made. Let's own them. Let's let them live so that they can teach us with the grace of God.